G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman and I'm a solicitor with the Elder Abuse Service at Gosford Legal Aid. In a previous episode, I spoke about elder grooming, befriending an older, vulnerable person with the intention of gaining a benefit from them. There is an element of that in this case. There is also another form of elder abuse I want to focus on, and that is pressuring, manipulating or influencing an older person to change their will in your favour. This case involves a dispute over the last will of the late Joyce Jean Cole and the accusations that Joyce did not have the capacity to make her 1993 will, that she didn't know or approve of the contents of the will, and that it was executed under undue influence and fraud. The court found that there was not enough evidence to support the case of undue influence or fraud, but did find that Joyce did not have the necessary capacity at the time of making the 1993 will. The way the court judgment was written, it follows the evidence of each witness before reaching a conclusion. This is a great chance to experience the court process, so even though I've chosen the most relevant parts, I'll do the same, and as I go through the evidence of the witnesses, you can ask yourself why that information is relevant, and see if you come to the same conclusion the court did. Background. In the early 1980s, Joyce was about 60 years old, and she was living alone in her house in 3 Cascade Street in Paddington in Sydney. She met and became friends with Reginald Greenfield. Reginald was a widower who had two daughters. He lived in some units at the back of a hotel in Paddington, close to Joyce's home. Joyce and Reginald spent a lot of time together. He was a regular visitor to her home, arriving around 7am and leaving at about 7pm each day. They had a close and caring relationship and would go shopping, walk the dogs and do chores together. They would hold hands, walk arm in arm and kiss. On 13th of February 1989, Joyce did a will, the 1989 will, which appointed the public trustee as executor of her estate and left everything to Reginald. Or, if Reginald died before her, her entire estate would go to one of Reginald's daughters, Sandra Janey. Around Easter in 1990, Reginald moved in to live with Joyce and they appeared to be in a de facto relationship. They shared domestic duties and Reginald paid the bills. In July 1992, Reginald suffered a stroke. He was taken to hospital and was later admitted into a nursing home, where he was living at the time of this court hearing in 1995. After Reginald left the house, Joyce's own mental and physical health went downhill. Around the Christmas holidays of 1992, Anastasia Pates came into the picture. Anastasia was born in 1935 and came to Australia when she was around 27 years old. Her first language is Greek. She isn't fluent in English and is unable to read or write in English. In late 1992, Anastasia Pates met Joyce and took it upon herself to begin helping Joyce around the house. Only a few months later, in March 1993, Anastasia arranged for her solicitor to visit Joyce's home to take instructions for a new will. The new will was signed on 11th of March 1993 and made Anastasia the executor and sole beneficiary of Joyce's estate. Two months after signing the new will, Joyce was found unconscious in her home following a severe stroke that was believed to have occurred two days earlier. 
so she had a stroke and no one knew for two days. She was admitted to hospital in a critical condition and a month later was moved into a nursing home. She stayed in the nursing home for only two months before her death on the 5th of August 1993. She left behind her estate of the house at 3 Cascade Street, Paddington, money in a bank account and an investment account. The court proceedings. Someone had to start these court proceedings, so who was it? If the last will, the 1993 will, was not valid because Joyce lacked testamentary capacity at the time, or because she signed it under undue influence or fraud, then the earlier 1989 will would prevail. The 1989 will appointed the public trustee as the executor and left the whole estate to Reginald Greenfield. Reginald was in the nursing home and not healthy enough to start court proceedings, so his daughter Diane Craig started these proceedings on his behalf, together with the public trustee. I want to refer to this as Reginald's side. Was the will valid? The starting point in this case is that the 1993 will was correctly signed and witnessed, and on the face of it looked to be a duly executed will. So the presumption is that the will is that of a person of competent understanding, and it is up to Reginald's side to prove that Joyce lacked capacity to make the will. While extreme age or illness will make the court scrutinise the will more carefully, it is not alone proof of lack of capacity. There must be a decay of intelligence such that Joyce did not appreciate what she was signing. The court noted that suspicions arise when a. If the person who arranged for the preparation and signing of the will got a benefit under the will, and b. if the willmaker was enfeebled, illiterate or blind. There was no medical examination conveniently taken at the time instructions were given for the will or when Joyce signed it, so the court needed to look elsewhere for evidence as to her capacity at that time. Undue influence A will may be set aside if it had been obtained from coercion depriving the deceased of free and voluntary consent. This is undue influence. All influence isn't unlawful. We influence people all the time and do nothing wrong by it. This is referring to a higher level of influence, one that overrides the will of the person. The court described it as, quote, Pressure of whatever character, whether acting on the fears or the hopes, if so exerted as to overpower the volition without convincing the judgment of the deceased, end quote. They are emphasising that the influence doesn't have to change the older person's mind, but does make it so that the older person consents even though they haven't changed their mind, if that makes sense. In this case, Reginald's side needed to prove that Anastasia was in a position of power over Joyce, and that this power overrode Joyce's own free will to get her to sign the 1993 will. Fraud Fraud arises where there was a fraudulent assertion or impression made to the willmaker, that cause the willmaker to execute their will as they have. It can't just be fraud in general. It has to directly affect the way the will was drafted. The Witnesses We will now look at the evidence of the witnesses and 
as I said before, have a think as I'm telling you this evidence. What is the purpose of the evidence? Why am I mentioning it? And then at the end, you can ask yourself, do I agree with the finding of the court? We'll start with Anastasia Pates. Anastasia claimed that she had met Joyce in mid-1970 in the Paddington neighbourhood in which they both lived, and that after they met they became friends and would chat often. Anastasia said that Joyce would give her children lollies, and Anastasia would cook and deliver food to Joyce. She didn't, however, call any of her children or anyone else to give evidence to support her claim that there had been this long-standing friendship with Joyce. Claire Damon was Joyce's next-door neighbour. She gave evidence that she had not seen Anastasia at Joyce's house until Christmas 1992. Another friend of Joyce, Margaret Austin, said the same thing. Anastasia claimed that Joyce remained mentally alert right up until she was hospitalised. To support this claim, she said how Joyce would give her English lessons every day. Anastasia said that in late 1992, Joyce visited her and asked her for help with her care. She said she began visiting daily, cooking her three meals a day, paying for all the food herself, and washing Joyce's clothes. She also said that she bathed Joyce in the kitchen and washed Joyce's hair before helping her to bed each night. The court found that if Anastasia was telling the truth, this would be evidence of Joyce's physical helplessness and the extent to which she relied on Anastasia for everyday care. While she might have been trying to convince the court of how deserving she was of inheriting Joyce's estate, she also inadvertently gave evidence about Joyce's vulnerability at that time, if her evidence was accepted to be true. Several other persons who had dealings with Joyce in her last six months gave different accounts. Diane Craig Diane did have an interest in the outcome of the case. Her father is Reginald, and if this last will is overturned, her father will inherit everything and most likely pass it on to her and her sister on his death. However, the court found her evidence to be credible. Diane said that after her father was hospitalised from his stroke in 1992, she would take Joyce to see him in the nursing home. It was usually Diane's idea but sometimes when they were speaking on the phone, Joyce would ask to be taken to see Reginald. Diane said that at times Joyce didn't seem to know that Reginald wasn't living with her anymore. She would say things like, Have you seen Reg? He was in for breakfast and he is gone. Diane described Joyce as someone who was unable to look after herself and described Joyce's home as a pigsty after her father left and was no longer there to do the cleaning. Brian Greenfield Brian Greenfield is Reginald's brother. He had known Joyce for about 10 to 12 years after a relationship started between her and Reginald. Brian described their relationship as a close one in which Reginald did all the domestic chores around the house and was responsible for paying the bills. He would also frequently take Joyce shopping. Brian gave evidence that even before Reginald was hospitalised, Joyce's mental capacity was declining. He said, quote, during the occasions that I visited Joyce and Reg, I noted that she appeared to suffer memory lapses and was frequently in a state of general confusion, and it was because of this that it was difficult to enjoy an intellectual conversation with her, end quote. After Reginald went into hospital, Brian said that Joyce's level of confusion increased and her memory capacities decreased. On one occasion, Joyce had called Brian and told him that Reginald had been taken to Sydney Hospital and that he had died. When Brian went with Joyce to the hospital, he found out that Reginald had suffered a stroke and was on life support. 
Even after they had seen him on life support, Joyce said to him, Terrible Reg dying. And even though Brian told her that Reginald was still alive, she still believed that he had died. In the eight months after Reginald went to hospital, Brian visited Joyce three or four times. He said that the state of her home steadily declined and the rubbish accumulated. Margaret Austin Margaret had known Joyce for about 14 years. They would visit each other and see each other often. Margaret said that Reginald had lived with Joyce for about 10 years or more. She would see him when she visited Joyce's home, even early in the morning. She said that they appeared to be close. He was the person who cared for Joyce, washing, cleaning, cooking and shopping. Margaret stated that Joyce's mental and physical condition appeared to decline as she got older, especially in the last 12 months of her life. She became frail, weak and unstable, and considerably thinner. She said that in that last year it had been difficult to have any intellectual or productive conversation with Joyce. Her memory had become poor and she was vague and confused. Joyce would wander the street aimlessly and often wouldn't know where she was. Margaret knew Anastasia as well. She told of how, in early 1993, Anastasia had approached her while she was weeding in her front garden. Anastasia asked Margaret if she lived alone and offered to assist with domestic chores. Margaret declined the offer. Mrs Hennessy, another resident in the area, said that Anastasia had made the same offer to her. Margaret did not believe Joyce knew Anastasia before 1993, saying that while she didn't know all of Joyce's acquaintances, she knew most of them because she would write letters for Joyce and also from listening to Joyce's stories. Peter Battaglia Peter Battaglia also lived in Paddington, had done so since 1973 and got to know Joyce in 1975. She would walk past his house when visiting the shops. In her later years, she would feed the pigeons in front of his house, and Peter would chat with her sometimes, as often as three times a week. Peter said that he had seen Joyce and Reginald together over a period of about ten years. On two occasions, in February 1993, not long before the will was signed, Peter found Joyce collapsed on the lawn in front of his house. He described her as sitting on the grass, hunched forward. On both occasions, he carried her back to her house. He said she probably weighed about 30 kilos and was smelling strongly with the pungent smell of body odour of long standing. Her right eye seemed swollen and she did not respond intelligibly when he spoke to her while taking her home. The court found Peter's evidence to be entirely credible and noted that he had no apparent interest in the matter. He wasn't going to get anything, no matter which side won, so why would he lie? Claire Damon Claire Damon lived next door to Joyce and first met Joyce in 1989. She described Joyce as a frail elderly woman, unclean, with dirty clothes and a terrible smell. Her eyes were weepy and there were sores on her face and hands. Claire said that Joyce's physical and mental deterioration was evident in a number of ways. 1. It was difficult having a conversation with her. Joyce would mainly tell stories about her past or her health and would tell the same stories again and again. 2. Joyce had extremely poor vision and would ask Claire and her daughter to read documents for her on occasions. 3. Claire also said that Joyce had been wandering the street near her home, mostly in those last 12 months. She would search garbage bins and take items home. On one occasion she saw Joyce in the middle of an intersection and when she approached Joyce asked, Who am I? What am I doing here? 4. Joyce had become pliable and easily led. 
Claire and her daughter would often tell her to go inside and have a sleep, and Joyce would without question. However, Claire did admit that Joyce refused to have Meals on Wheels attend the house, so she wasn't completely pliable. 5. Her house was cluttered, unkempt, and had a strong unpleasant smell. And 6. She was confused and told Claire that Reginald had died, when he had in fact gone to a nursing home. On one occasion she said she had lost her dog, which was standing right beside her. Claire said that before Reginald moved in with Joyce next door, he would visit her place daily. Then he moved in about Easter 1990 and looked after Joyce until his stroke. Claire first saw Anastasia next door around Christmas 1992, and after that she became a regular visitor to Joyce, sometimes visiting two or three times a day in the months before Joyce's death. Anastasia would often tell Claire that she was feeding and bathing Joyce. Claire didn't believe this because Joyce appeared malnourished and unclean. According to Claire, Joyce referred to Anastasia as the Greek lady and never by her name. After Joyce had her stroke and was hospitalised, Anastasia asked Claire for help to get into Joyce's home to water the plants, feed the dogs and get clean clothes for Joyce. Claire didn't believe her and refused to allow Anastasia to enter the home. Instead, she arranged for additional locks to be placed on the doors. The court found Claire to be a credible witness and again, she had no interest in the outcome of the case. I feel like in this case, it's good to have nosy neighbours who can give evidence about all the goings-on at your house. Sadie Hennessy Sadie Hennessy was a neighbour and would walk her dog past Joyce's house twice a day and would sometimes see Joyce in her front yard. She had often seen Reginald at Joyce's home, doing the shopping for Joyce or walking her dog. She had also seen Anastasia in the area several times. She recalled an occasion. Quote, I recall that about 12 months ago, this Greek lady approached me when I was walking back from the shops, at which time I was carrying some shopping bags, and she asked me if she could give me a hand. She asked why my husband didn't help me with the shopping, and I told her that I did not have a husband. I declined her offer for assistance, but she walked with me until I arrived home, and she then asked if I wanted her to do my house cleaning. She said that she liked to help people, but if I wanted her to clean for me, she would have to charge me $5 an hour but said that she primarily did the work because she enjoyed helping people. I again declined her offer and went into my residence. End quote. According to Sadie, this lady approached her a few other times. She would ask to come into the house for a cup of coffee and offer to clean the house. But Sadie continued to refuse. She said, quote, I had no doubt that this Greek lady was attempting to befriend me, but I continually declined her offers in spite of her persistent attempts to gain entry into my residence. End quote. Anastasia admitted that she approached Margaret Austin and Sadie Hennessy and offered to help with domestic chores, but she denied the accusation that she engaged in a practice of attempting to get into friendly relationships with elderly single women in the Paddington area. The court stated that those two occasions alone couldn't be taken of evidence of anything sus but did raise concerns about her credibility when coupled with the evidence of the circumstances in which Joyce's will was signed and the way she exaggerated the care she provided to Joyce. Catherine MacDonald Catherine MacDonald worked at the bank and got to know Joyce in the last 12 months of Joyce's life, as Joyce would go to the bank at least once a week to take money out. Catherine gave evidence that Joyce's memory was failing, she lost her passbook so many times that it was decided the bank would hold it for her. 
She would sometimes attend on the same day, forgetting that she had already been in withdrawn money. On one occasion, she got the bank confused with the post office and asked if they had any parcels for her. Peter Madden Peter Madden is a pharmaceutical chemist. Joyce had been a client of his for about 27 years and he would see her at least once a fortnight when she visited the pharmacy or he delivered her medication. Sometimes she would go into the pharmacy for a chat and he would sometimes drive her home. There were many times that he saw Reginald with Joyce. Peter described Reginald as being devoted to Joyce and looking after her. In the last few years, especially after Reginald's stroke, Joyce became vague, confused and forgetful. She also appeared frail and weak. Peter Madden said, quote, Before Reg left, Joyce had always been quite concerned about her appearance. She always made her face up and made all effort with her appearance. After Reg left, her appearance deteriorated markedly. Sometimes she appeared inappropriately attired, sometimes still with slippers on. She appeared obviously unbathed, and I do not believe she was bathing daily. It was obvious by her body odour that she had some degree of urinary incontinence, end quote. Fair enough that after Reg left, her appearance wasn't as important to her as it was before. But I think this kind of evidence raises doubt about the level of care she was getting. Because this is the time that Anastasia claims to be washing Joyce every day and doing her laundry. And yet Joyce's appearance would indicate that that isn't happening. Peter also gave evidence that Joyce would talk about the past but not be able to recall events that had happened the day before. She would get the pharmacy staff to go through her purse for money and to find any prescriptions or medications. Dr. Michael Mullen Schult Dr. Mullen Schult was Joyce's doctor from 1981 until her death in 1993. His records show that while she was fairly erratic and forgetful prior to Reginald's hospitalisation, Afterwards, she became edgy and disorganised. She saw him many times in late 1992 and 1993, complaining of difficulty remembering basic chores and medication. The doctor stated that her mental deterioration was evident, and by late 1992 she was not capable of making any sort of rational decisions regarding ordinary aspects of her existence. He noted that in the six months before her death, she appeared extremely thin, ungroomed and unbathed. The 1993 Will Mrs Evangelinidis was the solicitor who prepared the 1993 Will. Before that, she had been Anastasia's solicitor for about 10 years in relation to family law matters. It was Anastasia who made the arrangements for the Will. There might be nothing suspicious in the fact that Anastasia arranged for her solicitor to see Joyce. After all, if you're going to help your friend see a solicitor, you would probably recommend someone you already know. And Anastasia must have been happy with Mrs. Evangelinidis' work since she stayed with her for about 10 years. However, there was some scepticism about the evidence Mrs. Evangelinidis gave in court. In response to allegations that she had knowingly made false or misleading statements in court, she merely stated that she was acting as instructed by her client Anastasia. This is not an acceptable excuse. Solicitors are officers of the court and must not mislead the court and must be frank in their responses and disclosures to the court. Anastasia claimed that Joyce asked her to arrange for a solicitor to make Joyce's last will and that she wanted a Greek-speaking solicitor to make it easier for Anastasia. 
She also said that in early 1993, Joyce often said to her words to the effect of, Make sure you don't sell the house. I leave everything to you. You live in the house and leave it for your children. On the 5th of March 1993, Mrs Evangelinidis came to the house to take instructions for the will. Anastasia introduced them to each other and then went into the kitchen. Mrs Evangelinidis said that the house was cluttered and appeared not to have been cleaned for some time. She also claimed that Joyce was lucid and clear when she instructed her to prepare a will leaving everything to Anastasia. Joyce told the solicitor that she didn't have a spouse or children, but Mrs Evangelinidis didn't ask any further questions and therefore didn't find out about Reginald or the terms of the previous will. Mrs Evangelinidis said that she took instructions for about 20 minutes, but her written notes taken at the time were very brief. The court noted that instructions must have been extremely slow going and said that this was consistent with the other evidence that by this time it was very difficult to have a conversation with Joyce because of her mental deterioration. Mrs Evangelinidis, Joyce and Anastasia then had a chat for about 10 minutes. A social chat is a good way for a solicitor to assess capacity, but there was nothing in Mrs Evangelinidis' notes about this. She arranged for Joyce to come to her office to sign the will. On 11th March 1993, Joyce and Anastasia went to the office. Mrs Evangelinidis said that she asked Anastasia to stay outside, but that Joyce wanted her to remain in the office, and so Anastasia was present when Joyce signed the will. Mrs Evangelinidis said that she read the will to Joyce, and asked her if she was happy with it, and Joyce said, Yes, I want Asia to get everything. Mrs Evangelinidis and another staff member, Mr Callenzice, witnessed Joyce sign the will. Neither of them made any written notes about the witnessing. Two months later, on the 11th of May 1993, Anastasia went to Joyce's home, but no one answered the door. Even though she had a key, she didn't go in. Instead, she called the police, who opened the door and found Joyce unconscious inside. They called an ambulance and Joyce was admitted to hospital. Anastasia gave evidence that she visited Joyce in hospital on the 12th of May and that they had a lengthy conversation. She gives a detailed account in her statement. However, the court noted that while the conversation would give an impression of impassioned allegiance between Anastasia and Joyce, the medical notes state that Joyce was unconscious and unresponsive to voice or pain stimuli. Her medical records for the next day state that Joyce would respond to her name, but was not understandable. On 2nd of June 1993, Joyce was admitted to a nursing home, and a month later, on the 5th of August, she died. Anastasia said that she visited Joyce about three times a week in the nursing home. She did not visit for a week when she had the flu, and when she returned to the nursing home, she was told that Joyce had died and the funeral had already happened. She said that she was upset she had not been informed of Joyce's death. Only two people attended Joyce's funeral, Diane Craig and another unidentified lady. Other evidence After Joyce's death in November 1993, Diane Craig, Reginald's daughter, called the solicitor, Mrs Evangelinidis, to arrange to collect her father's belongings from the house. Mrs Evangelinidis and her colleague, Mr Callenzice, both provided statements that during the phone conversations, 
Diane had referred to her father as a boarder, and not as Joyce's de facto partner. Joyce denied that she ever said her father was a boarder. The court didn't put much weight in the statements of Mrs Evangelinidis and Mr Callanzais, and found that their statements matched too closely as if they had copied each other. Mrs Evangelinidis referred to her handwritten file note of the conversation, which said, Reginald Greenfield living, and then on the next line, he was a boarder there, and on the next line, keys will be sent. However, the court noted that he was a boarder there, had been written in a different pen and inferred that the words had been added in between the two sentences later. In February 1994, Anastasia approached the pharmacist Peter Madden two times and asked that he provide her with a letter. He wasn't sure what the letter was to be, but described it as a character letter. According to Peter, Anastasia said to him that she had been looking after Joyce, cleaning the house and that Joyce had told her the house was hers. Peter said, Joyce never told me about you. Anastasia said, I often went down there in the dark of night so no one would see me. Peter replied, I've never heard about this, I would not be prepared to give you a letter. That's just what Peter says happened, but it is backed up by Dr. Mullenschultz's evidence. The doctor said that on three occasions Anastasia asked him to prepare a medical statement. He refused and told her that the solicitors should make a written request. She said words like, quote, it might be advantageous for you if you help me, end quote. The court stated that all of this evidence taken together suggests that Anastasia was trying to ingratiate herself in order to get evidence to support her case. Analysis So the main points to take away from the evidence of the witnesses are that 1. Joyce and Reginald had a close and loving relationship for some years and that this was evident to neighbours and people who knew them. Why is this relevant? It raises doubt about whether Joyce understood the 1993 will. She was leaving nothing to a man who she had been very close with to leave it to someone she hadn't known very long. It would make more sense if Reginald was only a boarder, as Mrs Evangelinidis and Mr Callanzice tried to make out. But there were plenty of witnesses to show that Reginald wasn't a boarder. They had been de facto partners. 2. After Reginald left the house, Joyce's personal hygiene deteriorated and the house became messy and cluttered. Why is this relevant? It can be indicative of her mental health and her physical health. She can no longer look after herself and perhaps doesn't think to do so. Also, Anastasia claims that she provided Joyce with a lot of care, helping with bathing, dressing, cooking and cleaning, but the evidence is otherwise. It would also be relevant because Anastasia's painting this picture, where she provides so much care and assistance for Joyce, that Joyce is appreciative and wants to leave her the whole estate. But the evidence indicates that that care and assistance isn't being provided, so you could also assume that the appreciation isn't there either. 3. Joyce's mental capacity had been diminishing for years. Why is this relevant? This goes to the core of the case, that Joyce did not have the capacity to do a will in 1993. She did not have the capacity to understand her assets, the people she should consider making provisions for, and the effect of the will. 
Four. Anastasia had only known Joyce a short while. She had tried to argue that she had known Joyce for many years, but all the neighbours and friends said that she only came onto the scene in late 1992. Why is this relevant? Again, throwing doubt on the 1993 will. Would it make sense to leave your whole estate to someone you had only known for a few months? The outcome. The court found that the 1993 will was duly executed and valid, but that the evidence raised significant doubts as to Joyce's testamentary capacity. There was no evidence that Anastasia had coerced Joyce, and the evidence didn't support a finding of undue influence or fraud. Instead, the evidence indicated a process of Anastasia ingratiating herself to Joyce, and that this was effective because of Joyce's declining mental state. Joyce's physical infirmity, advancing age, and serious mental decline were evidence that her mental faculties were so affected that she would have been incapable of disposing of her property. Even if Joyce had said words to the effect of, I want to leave everything to Tasia, there was no evidence that she considered Reginald or the terms of the previous will. This change of will meant she was making no provision for Reginald, who had been her companion and de facto partner for 10 to 15 years, and instead left everything to Anastasia, who she had, at the time, known for about three to four months. There was even evidence that she thought Reginald was dead, which should have been corrected when she gave instructions for the new will. The court granted probate of the 1989 will that left everything to Reginald. The court noted that there is a conflict of interest where the person who arranges for the will to be made is also to be a beneficiary under the new will, in which case the solicitor should advise on a number of matters, including advice potentially contrary to the beneficiary who arranged everything. Such a conflict will especially arise where there is reason to fear that the testator does not have testamentary capacity due to fragility, illness or advanced age. The court recommended that in these situations, 1. The solicitor should fully question the testator to determine capacity. 2. Another person should be present to also give evidence of capacity, ideally a doctor. 3. The solicitor should make detailed notes about the appointment and the assessment of capacity immediately after the appointment. 4. The solicitor should recommend that the client get a medical assessment at the time of doing the will. One positive thing you can take from this case is that Joyce appeared to have a lot of people who cared about her. For many years she had Reginald as a close and loving companion. Then there were a lot of neighbours and friends who knew her, spoke to her, saw her often, and were willing to come forward and give evidence. That was the case of the estate of the late Joyce Jean Cole. The case citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on this case or recommendations of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. And if you have identified or if you are at risk of elder abuse, you should call the helpline on 1800 353 374 
or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 024324 5611.